What was it like to march in Birmingham, Alabama, beside legendary civil rights leaders like Wyatt Walker, James Bevel, Fred Shuttlesworth, and Martin Luther King, Jr.? And what was it like to be a child protester facing down police dogs and fire hoses? In You Have to Be Prepared to Die Before You Can Begin to Live, a new book hailed by the New York Times as History as Motion Picture, journalist and critically acclaimed author Paul Kicks tells the riveting, in-depth story of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference's campaign to desegregate what was then known as the most racist city in America. It started with a kernel of an idea and escalated into one of the most pivotal ten weeks of the entire civil rights movement. In the following audio excerpt, narrated by Jamie Lincoln Smith, author Paul Kicks writes about the child-led protests on D-Day, May 2nd, 1963. Fifty children marched two by two. They sang, We Shall Overcome, as they moved straight into the phalanx of cops across the street in Kelly Ingram Park. When officers told them to halt, they did. When officers told them to return to the church, they did not. The officers said the children were in violation of the city's code for parading without a permit. The children dropped to their knees and prayed as they'd been instructed. In the filmed footage from this day, some cops looked puzzled. They in battle helmets, unarmed children praying at their feet. The cops glancing at each other as if asking, how do we do this? Gently, it turned out. The cops carefully lifted the kids one by one and walked the arrested children to a waiting padding wagon. Whether out of their own concern or because of the National Press Corps a few yards away that recorded this encounter, the cops seemed to breathe a sigh of relief when the 50 children were driven off, as if their work were done. It was at that point that Bevel had the next 50 march out. It went like this for an hour. A freedom song. You're in violation of the city's code. Children praying on their knees. A paddy wagon. A lull when it looked like these were the last of the child protesters. Then another 50 stepping out of the church. Some groups held signs that said, Freedom. Segregation is a sin, or I'll die to make this land my home. Some groups walked to different corners of the park before being stopped. One group tried to avoid the park entirely and headed up 6th Avenue North, which gave them a straight shot to City Hall. Bull Connor watched that group closely and had his officers arrest the kids before they made much headway. Bull had something in his mind about not letting niggers get to City Hall, Wyatt Walker later said with a dry chuckle. Some praying kids refused to walk to the paddy wagon, and so the cops took them by their limbs and dragged them there. Almost every group sang, We Shall Overcome, or Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Round, or more pointedly, and a song seemingly meant for the gathering adults who watch from the street. Will you join us, or will you time for the big bad bull? The cops began to run out of paddy wagons, Officers crammed ever more kids inside the remaining few vehicles. It became a two or three cop job just to shove the doors closed. And then another 50 walked out of the church. Around this time, one officer approached Fred Shuttlesworth standing outside 16th Street Baptist. Hey, Fred, how many more have you got? At least a thousand. God Almighty, 
Bull Connor brought buses in from the Jefferson County School District. Soon those brimmed with children, too, who waved to the adults on the streets or to their friends about to be arrested alongside them in the park. Some kids sang as the buses drove to jail. Sing, children, sing, one elderly woman shouted back, watching it all, overwhelmed by it all. Maybe 500 kids had been hauled off by this point, and cops looked worn down from the cuffing and cramming. James Bevel halted the next group of protesters and walked out of the church and into the park. He walked straight to Bull Connor, who had spent a good portion of the afternoon with his hands on his hips and exasperation on his face. You men have to take a break, Bevel said. Bevel's directness with Bull suggested two things. The sympathy Bevel held for even his enemy's needs, and how thoroughly Bevel controlled events here, able to damn the flood of protesters whenever he wanted and change the dynamic of the afternoon simply because he felt like it. Yeah, Bull said, a little cowed by Bevel. We need a break because my officers, they've been out here and they haven't had anything to eat. Bevel nodded. As if it had been ordained by God, food trucks came into view and parked on 16th Street North and 6th Avenue. The police department ordered so many sandwiches and Coca-Colas that they were set down in big cardboard boxes. Bevel and the SCLC placed their own orders for the kids, but Bevel then walked back outside and crossed the street. He took a sandwich from one of the cops' boxes. He unwrapped it and ate within view of Connor. Hey! Bull shouted. What's that nigga doing eating our sandwich? Bevel laughed. In response, he walked back into the church, and moments later, the next group of 50 marched out. The cops had to rise from the curb and guzzle down their cokes and start cuffing again. By the end of the afternoon, 973 children had been arrested. The mugshots that day showed cool unfazed boys and girls with the glare of defiance in their eyes, smiling teenagers and shy tweens who hunched their shoulders, young men in newsboy caps and girls with their hair wrapped, bespeckled kids, kids caught in mid-laugh, kids caught in the midst of a terrible thought, kids too young to know they should look at the camera, their pupils drifting up to the flash of the bulb while they held their booking placard before them. They had prepared for this eventuality. They had been told by Bevel they were doing God's work. Some all too aware of Bombingham's reputation even saw their coming martyrdom. They tell me, well, I know you're gonna kill me, Detective James Parsons later recalled, but I want to call my mama first. It was a fevered situation that afternoon in the city and county jails, a lengthy line at the booking areas, just too many kids to process. Kids flushed with daring, or beaming with pride for the fear they'd overcome. Some succumbed to that fear and bawled in their cells. Still more kids crowded in next to them. Many were concerned that the protests might lead to their parents losing their jobs. Bevel had instructed the children to say nothing when asked who their parents were. The cops arrested eight-year-old Margaret Givener that afternoon, and when the officers asked her for the names of her parents, she told them, no comment. Later that night at the juvenile jail, Margaret sat in a cell with her 12-year-old sister and other young people when law enforcement agents approached the Givener girls again. They asked us who our parents were and where we lived. 
They said they wanted it so they could call our parents, Margaret later said. The cops tried to position this phone call as an act of goodwill, letting the governors know their daughters were safe. Young Margaret saw through the ruse. We didn't tell them anything. Almost to a child, the kids followed the SCLC's training. Janice Kelsey sure did. She was the honor student from Woolman High, who'd attended Bevel's earliest workshop. She had her life altered when Bevel told her and other teenagers how their school supplies were white school's discards. Kelsey did not come from an activist household. She had taken Shelley Stewart's coded message about toothbrushes so literally this morning that she'd smuggled her family's tube of toothpaste out of her home. Kelsey had surprised herself today, first by finding the courage to march, and then by feeling excited when a yellow school bus came to haul her away. She'd always dreamed of riding in a Jefferson County yellow school bus. Black students in Birmingham weren't allowed to. I sat down in the front seat, Kelsey later wrote. No one would tell her to sit in the back today. We started singing freedom songs again and had the greatest time. At the booking station, officers took her and other students' jackets and purses and wallets, all their personal effects, and moved the kids to a jail cell, which wasn't a proper cell but a holding area. Other kids occupied all official cells. Some of those cells jammed in 75 kids. The units had been designed for eight. Kelsey's holding area, not quite as crowded, turned cold that night. There were no beds. Kelsey and her friends slept on the chilly concrete floor. Sounds as bad as it was, but for one thing. A thought that Kelsey and almost all other children considered that day. They had done it. They had filled the jails. The whole world is watching Birmingham, Fred Shuttlesworth shouted at the night's mass meeting, held at 6th Avenue Baptist. More than 2,000 people looked back at him, rising and amening and applauding, the largest crowd yet for any mass meeting. Fred was almost too jittery to speak. He had never been a part of any protest as successful as today's, he had woken early this morning and headed straight to the church to see that deluge of students rushing in. Fred had darted from one group of kids to the next, interrupting the final training sessions Bevel or other SCLC colleagues led to give short bursts of inspiration. Freedom fighters, he told the kids. That's what they were. As much so as those in the army, but without weapons. Oh, it was wonderful to witness. The student leaders whom Bevel had handpicked, Shuttlesworth, had guided Bevel to many of them. Fred knew these kids, knew their character, their parents. Birmingham was Fred's town, and to see what happened today made the years of struggle, the Christmas Day bombing, the beating at all-white Phillips High, his endless encounters with Bull, many of them faced alone or with his tiny band of congregants. Today, redeemed all that pain. Our little folks, he said to the crowd at 6th Avenue Baptist, emotion coursing through him. Those children had damn near filled the jails. No one had done that. Not one civil rights group in the whole of the movement stretching back to the 1950s. But they'd done it today in Fred's town of Birmingham, Alabama. Amazed himself, he repeated the number for the audience. One thousand kids. James Bevel spoke too. 
There ain't going to be no meeting like this Monday night because every Negro is going to be in jail by Sunday night, he said. He asked for a show of hands. Who'd been inspired by the children? It seemed almost 2,000 arms shot up. Then go to jail, Bevel said. He'd been many times. His wife Diane was incarcerated now. She'd been arrested for protesting days earlier. Bevel said he wanted everyone in jail over the weekend. So that I can be back in Mississippi chopping cotton by Tuesday. Like this morning, Bevel then helped to lead the congregation in song. 2,000 people rose to their feet and the church erupted in freedom anthems. The adults left the pews and marched up and down the aisles as if practicing what they planned to do over the weekend. King spoke as well. I have been inspired and moved today, he said. He meant that literally. He'd pushed himself from his room in the Gaston in part because the afternoon could not have gone better. Peaceful protests, mass arrests, no counterviolence, no injuries. In the greatest of God's beneficence, they were close to filling the jails. I have never seen anything like it, King shouted to the crowd. For every child arrested, two or three more had come in through the back of the church, hoping to protest. Some of us might have to spend three or four hours tonight planning our strategy for tomorrow, King said. If they think today is the end of this, they will be badly mistaken. You have to be prepared to die before you can begin to live. Ten Weeks in Birmingham That Changed America by Paul Kicks is now available wherever books and audiobooks are sold.